Hi there. Welcome to the Caucus 50 podcast. My name is Rachel Barreca and I'm your host today. And I'm very, very excited to let you know that I am sharing this conversation today with Jennifer Hamilton, Janet Mee, and David Newman. And we're going to talk about Caucus and the communities of practice model that we've adopted in the last let's say 10 years or so, um, from maybe start to, to, to finish or start to now, and just talk a little bit about why it happened, why the change happened, what the change was, and where we're going. So welcome to you all. Hello. 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 Okay. <laughs> well, it's really great to have you here. And um, obviously, you all come with different perspectives and knowledge about the experience that our organization went through when we created the Communities of Practice model. And so um, let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start and talk a little bit about what were the divisions in caucus that were in place prior to the implementation of the Community of Practice model? Who wants to go? (laughs) Okay, Jennifer, why don't you start us off as executive director of the organization? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's really interesting is that, you know, through caucuses history from the the time we were founded, we were really a federation of um, organizations. And so as the organization evolved in the 70s and 80s and 90s, we continued this federated model. And so at the beginning of sort of the 2010s, when caucus was, you know, a, a burgeoning organization and hired its first staff. We had six divisions of caucus and those divisions um, functioned as sort of pseudo independent organizations that were under the umbrella of caucus and that independence also was was one of the drivers of um, well i wouldn't say i'm a significant driver but it was partially a driver of of some of that change and i i'd like to test david and, and janet to see if they can name the six divisions that were in place in 2012. i'm gonna say kuka cadsby um oh shoot now where am i gonna go from there sasa okay david help me out i got three Uh, i can get the other three um nasa couch and uh, kazja which i know had changed names over time but yeah so those were the six yeah those are like big acronyms can we can we can we spell those out So, so counseling, so counseling services, the health folks, they were the couch folks, right? We're uh, couch. Um, uh, SASA was the student affairs division. NASA was our um, indigenous uh, student services colleagues. Um, and CASB was the disability group. Now I missed one. Who have I missed? CASJA, which was uh, judicial affairs. And I think what was really interesting was it was really... SASA, so the Student Affairs Division was this huge division that in, encompassed, um, I would say, I think it's, if I remember correctly, more than half of the association. And then there were these other divisions that had equal sort of organizational status, but had fewer resources, fewer people, and less capacity to, to really achieve the objectives or the or, or the work of those divisions. So it was, while, while they were equal on paper, um, they were very much um, uh, split in terms of their, their capacity and their membership. Well, that, that actually comes to a follow-up question I have is like, why did we choose to move away from having divisions to communities of practice? I hear one potential reason there in terms of equaling things out a little bit. And, and maybe I could just add, because I, 
I do think the resourcing was a major driver. I mean, there's a, a number of others, but it really was a major driver. And uh, for a little bit of background, I was uh, one of the la- one of the last presidents of SASA. <laughs> as well. So um, SASA, as the student affairs organization, it, it always felt like it was, you know, when we were sitting on the board, uh, everybody knew that SASA had all these resources and all the other divisions had no resources. Yet it was still a challenge, I, I think, for each of the divisions to figure out how to use their resources effectively, because I think the smaller divisions didn't have enough to do what they wanted to do. And SASA was so big and so broad in a lot of ways that um, it didn't know what to do with the money it had. And so it was a bit of a resource issue that I think was was certainly one of the drivers. Of course, there's there's many others um, that that led towards thinking about how can we think about this differently? Jennifer, would you add anything in there or Janet about reasons for the change? I'm happy to, to jump in. I, I think um, uh, as a board member um, and, and probably just as a, a an individual, I, I do think I'm sort of known as a federalist um, politically, right? That, that I do believe that there is a value in a national voice. And one of the things that was really missing for caucus was that national voice. We had no capacity to identify issues that crossed all of those um, uh, divisional responsibilities, and also no ability to um, really um, champion a single issue as an organization. Right? We had to rely on, like, we had divisions who were speaking to federal politicians as if they were an independent organization and not actually representing the voice of caucus. So there was no true voice of caucus at a time when there was a a tremendous need for a national organization who could represent critical issues across student affairs. And so like, certainly I think the financial piece was a, was one of the symptoms of it. Um, But largely we just had no capacity to operate as a, as a national organization. Yeah, I think, and I, I, to build on what Janet and David had already said, I think one of the the pieces that, um, was also a driver was we had published the caucus identity project. So the leaders and learning document in 2011, 2012, and it sparked a number of conversations amongst our members about who we were as an organization, what values we held and where we wanted to go in the future. And so I think those kind of those deep conversations as a community, as a collective really helped us frame some questions that the board had to grapple with. Another really big driver for us was the fact that the the not-for-profit legislation had changed. And so we were on a timeline, every every not-for-profit corporation in Canada was on a timeline to update their bylaws to be in line with the legislation by 2014. And so, you know, one of the things that we had structurally as an organization was we had seven, I think seven appointed directors to our board. It was a 15 person board those board members were appointed as, as a, because they were presidents of their divisions, but legally under the new legislation, we wouldn't have been allowed to operate under that appointed structure. And so we had this opportunity to look at our bylaws in the context of the conversations we were having about our identity and say, how do we want to align our values and who we want to be as an organization with the legislation and these other drivers that that Janet and David had mentioned. 
And so having the, the divisional structure wasn't as nimble as I think we wanted to be looking towards the future. They were rigid structures. They were rigid organizations within the organization. They each had a board, they each had bylaws. And I think that the community of practice model really made us think about ways in which we could be more responsive to the future of who we were going to be as, a, as an association. It occurs to me that one of the benefits as well of moving into this model is that it allows for a lot more interdisciplinarity, right? You no longer are just a health promotions person or a counseling person, but those voices are having conversations with the leadership educators and the residents' life people and the careers folks and our students' lives are, are completely uh, holistic that way. So it's actually allowed us to be a little bit more holistic. I don't, I, I'm seeing some nods. Would you agree? Yeah, and I'll just make a quick comment on that as well. I think once we, while we were creating the community of practice model, which took us a while to get there, and I know we'll talk about that a little bit later, but it also allowed the opportunity for people to join whichever community practice they wanted to join. In our previous model, you were, um, by virtue of setting up your membership, a member of caucus, and you could have a primary or secondary membership with a division, but now it does allow for that breadth so that somebody who is a health educator could go to a leadership educator's um, event or activity in a COP. And, and uh, certainly with a lot more COPs, uh, it also creates more of that interdisciplinarity as well. I totally agree. And I, I think um, one of our, um, I think one of our ambitions was to, to really shift the work of the organization so that we were much more focused on the work of student affairs and less on the operation of the association. So it was quite freeing, right, to move from the divisional, we hope at least to move from the divisional model where um, the boards of each of those um, divisions was really running an organization. So they had their own board of directors, they had their own finance committee, they had all of these administrative processes that they had to go through. And at the end of the day, in order to do that well, they forfeited the ability to actually focus on the work of, of that division or that association or caucus as a whole. And so I think David's right, like we really got to this place where we could flip it so that we had one board of directors that was really focused on the work of the association, keeping the, you know, the mechanics and the business of the association going, keeping a strategic direction. And then the communities of practice could come together in multiple iterations to think about the work itself. And I do think that's led to a much more intersectional approach. People can move from division to division. They take that knowledge and that passion back and forth with them as they go. Um, and um, I think, I hope that the, that the kind of conversations and the sense of community is much stronger in this model than it might have been in the divisional model. One other quick comment I wanted to make, Rachel, is too, is that, you know, there's been calls for our work to be de-siloed for a really long time. I think it was Paul Gilmore, who was a former uh, vice provost of the University of Guelph, who wrote a paper for caucus, I think it was in 1985 or 1986, talking about the holistic nature of our work, right? Yet our own organization, our own national association was structured as the siloed, as the siloed organization. And I think as we began to start to have conversations, for example, around student mental health, that is sort of like, okay, well, that's the counselor's 
issue, mental health, right? And I think in the beginning of the late 2000s, it, um, you know, 2008, 2009, we started looking at some of these issues as, as, as not as a siloed issue. Campus mental health, student mental health was everybody's concern, was something that we all needed training and learning in and knowledge about. So those conversations, and then we were able to spark kind of a national project on, on post-secondary student mental health because we started to break down those silos. So I think it was also a reflection of where we were going in our work to sort of say, just because you're a student who experiences a barrier due to a disability, it's not only that office that has to support that student, it's all of us. So yeah, I think that was a really important conversation as well. So the evolution of the organization matches the evolution of our field and the evolution of higher education in the country as well, which is a good thing. We should be doing that. <laughs> I'm curious to hear about um, how this came about uh, and and why a community of practice model. Um, you know, were, were you looking at, um, you know, theoretical reasons for that? Were you looking at Laven Wenger's, you know, model and, and theory around that? Or was, was it from a, another professional association that we took it or something else, combinations of those things? I, I can jump in and I know David and Janet probably have lots of things to say about this, but I think w within, within SASA, which was the student affairs division, the largest division at the time, they were experimenting a little bit with the idea of communities of practice. So they, um, the, that division started the leadership educators um, part of that. And they had also over the years had a new professionals group and a peer leaders group that kind of emerged out of out of that larger group. So there was a need or, a, you know, a desire to have these smaller groupings where people could gather together with shared, uh, shared ideas. And so definitely the COP model was something that that we, I think, intrigued us in terms of how can we break down the structures and make them more nimble and responsive to the member needs. So we did bring in um, some of that theoretical piece, we had folks like Tricia Seifert come in and talk to our board and our and our divisional leaders about what a community of practice was and 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 whether or not it fit those kind of philo philosophical pieces. We also experimented a little bit in, at some of the conferences with this idea of birds of a feather. So we we gathered together folks who shared interests to have these informal conversations that weren't presentations, but were more just let's get together. I'm an orientation professional or I'm interested in orientation. Let's get together for an hour during the conference. So that was a bit of a pilot of what that future model could look like. I, I don't have much much else to add, but I totally forgot about the birds of a feather. So thanks for reminding me of that. Janet? Um, I, I do. Um, I think Jennifer's summary is, is, um, is spot on. And, and I had also forgotten about the birds of a feather. I mean, actually, it's amazing how much I had forgotten about until I got invited to, to, to do this um, podcast and had to go back and look at some documents. Um, I, think, I, I think as much as the communities of practice were a model that was in play, I, th I think we were also open to whatever structure would work for the organization um, that would work towards the goals that we had set. So I, I think, although... Um, I, I think at times we've kind of roamed through the process of organizational change and maybe didn't follow any sort of set structure around um, how we would get to where we were going. We were very principled in the, in the decisions we were making. So we had a goal. Um, we had a set of outcomes that we were driving towards. 
Um, and, um, and we remained kind of open through the consultation process to what that structure would look like um, as we move forward. And it was certainly um, a bit of a roller coaster ride um, uh, to get from where we started to where we, where we are today. Um, but I, I, do, I, I do remember that, that SASA had some really good strength in their communities of practice model and that that certainly was one of the, the places that we looked to. And maybe I will add just one piece because you reminded me, Janet, of, of the um, the consultation process as we were going through the decision making for a new structure. And we did create a number of strategic committees that I think were really important in getting there that lasted over a number of years, um, including a models and decision making committee, a communications and co consultation committee, and also a committee just to keep things going as we were trying to navigate where we were going for the future. We weren't especially clever in the naming of our committees. <laughs> Listen, if it works and it tells people what you are and what you're doing, that's good. I'm curious to know what some of the ups and downs on that roller coaster were. What, you know, are there any like particular big dips that made your stomach fall out <laughs> that you can think of? And, and also some really great peaks that you're like, oh, we're on the right track. Well, we were at the, co at the conference this year. I, I was reminded um, about a, a couple of, I think, maybe assumptions and, and, um, moments um for me at least as in my time as president um and and one was actually the first board meeting where we were talking about the organizational change and i don't remember the dynamics and i don't remember the players and i don't remember um what was contentious but i do remember the anxiety that i felt over the stress that was in that room like it was palpable um, and I and I remember um, on the last day, I have this necklace that my um, parents gave me, um, and it's an, an antique necklace. And the story behind it is one of kindness and generosity. And I wear it um, uh, often if I'm feeling tired and I'm hoping to just remind myself that I should be a kind and generous person, or you know, quietly if I'm hoping to invoke kindness and generosity in others. And I kind of just hold it and hope that they get the vibe from the necklace. And I remember telling the story at that meeting because I was just so overwhelmed by the tension in the room and I just could not see a way forward. Um, and I, I think that moment for me at least broke some of that tension for a period of time. I mean, it came back time and time again, um, but um, it was hard for people to let go of a structure that had been in place for like close to 25 years, I think, or more at that point. Um, and to give up that autonomy um, and to, to release um, your ability to drive an association forward and hand it over to a board of directors that was going to now be an elected board of directors was a hard thing for the organization to do. And it, it, took, it took us a lot of time and it, and it took a lot of patience, I think. I, I think it, the, the, the emotion that Janet is speaking about, I think, speaks a couple of things. It speaks the fact that people really care about this organization. And that's always been true, I think, throughout our history, that people are very, you know, attached to their identity within caucus. And I think that we underestimated that for some folks, they also held that same attachment to their division. And so I think we anticipated that for NASA, I think because 
um, just I think the, the the personal identity tied in with the identity of that division. I think we anticipated it there, but we didn't anticipate it with some of the other divisions that um, that were resistant to kind of moving forward. You know, there was a sense that someone was going to lose something, and you know, I I remember that moment. I remember that necklace, Janet. I I think that you know one of the things that that. Janet under her leadership and I mean all the board at the time was that there really was a genuine commitment to um, consultative conversations right and so really listening to every voice that was in that room I remember exactly where we were we were at Hard House at the University of Toronto and on the second floor and I you know I it, that day stands out for me as well because I think that people were quite passionate about the conversations we were having and there was a lot of emotion attached to um, the decisions and not just in that moment throughout that sort of four or five year conversations that we had. So um, it was both a positive thing, but also a very challenging thing for us to navigate. And I think it, like any change that organizations go through and, and Rachel, you know this, you just went through this at TMU with your name change. You think that you're there and then all of a sudden you realize that you've missed something or that there was a voice that wasn't heard or you misinterpreted a conversation and you had to take a few steps back and go, you know, follow that path again. So it was a really great learning experience for me in my first few years in this role as executive director, for sure. David, any thoughts? I mean, they both explained it so well, and I do remember that meeting very well uh, as well. And I, I do, you know, one of the things I was reflecting on, and I think Jennifer just just uh, said it really well, was sort of the um, changing and evolving opinions that came from people. And so sometimes we really felt like people were moving in one direction and then then their perspective had changed and there's a lot of good reasons why they had changed and they got feedback from new people heard new voices you know the same kind of thing and so sometimes that back and forth it, it, it there were these moments where i thought are, are we going to actually be able to make a change that we need to and in some cases going back to what jennifer was talking about before we have we had legislation that we had to make some sort of change um but we also had the work that was done through the identity project and and other um things that were just happening in our work that we really did need to make that change and i think i do think there was really strong goodwill across the board for us to move forward and make that change i think it was just it was just the process to get there and making sure that we were giving uh, adequate process to the most significant change we've uh, experienced as an organization. And I, I think um, one of the things that I think we should be probably most proud of, or, or at least proud of, is we got really good at taking a deep breath and taking a big step back. Like, like that, and that was hard at first, right? Because you're like, we do have a timeline, we need to get there. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't think we dragged anyone across the finish line. Like, I think people walked on their own fruition across that finish line, proud of where we got to. And there were there was dissenters for sure. But as an organization, we 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 made it together. And I think it was those big leaps backwards. Those, OK, we've you know, we forgot this piece or we, or we didn't think about, you know, this approach or, or this issue that that got us to the end in a healthy way 
Well, let's talk a little bit now. You know, the this model has been implemented now for close to a decade or so. Um, what are some of the outcomes that you've observed as a result of this shift to this model? We've talked a lot about the process of getting there, but what have you noticed since it's been adopted and, and we've let it kind of breathe and 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 uh, live a little bit? Um, David, do you want to start us off there? Sure. Yeah. Uh, and I'd like to start by saying I can't believe that was t- almost 10 years ago. Uh it just seems like it was yesterday in a lot of ways, but it also seems like there's been a lot of good establishment with the COP model and the new organization for caucus. So I just when I hear that, it's sort of shocking. But um, one of the things I would say that I noticed that was, I sort of suspected would be the case, but uh, when you actually see it in action, it's really... Uh, really, I think a, a good thing for us to see is the number of members who are involved in more leadership roles across the across the organization is um, through the roof. I, I think you know when we're at the annual conference or the AGM and you see the slides where the list of the people who are involved as co-chairs or chairs of the various COPs, um, we didn't have that before, and I think. Just sort of going back to Janet's comment earlier about the um, ability for the COPs to actually do the work instead of the governance of the organization. Um, so really thinking about how we're how we're going to advance the profession across Canada. Um, there are so many people leading the way in uh, getting the membership what they need, and so that's just been a remarkable change that I'm very happy to see. Jen, what about you? What have you noticed? Yeah, I mean, I think that that our communities of practice model, you know, we put a lot of thought into how um, principled thought in terms of how um, structured or unstructured we wanted it to be. We wanted it to the structure to be nimble. I think that, um, you know, there there is definitely some support needed. Um, I think we underestimated the amount of staff support that that was required to really uphold those COPs and help them get the work done. Every one of our community of practice leaders is is a volunteer with the organization and holds full-time jobs. So it's, you know, it is, is, I think that ebb and flow in terms of um, just how active those communities are. And it's, so we've seen some communities that have continued to be super active and some which are a little bit more dormant and I think that that's partly the point is that that there's there's a need and there's a desire or there's there's that energy there and if it wanes a little bit that's part of the nimbleness it's like let it let it rest for a couple of years and see if there's if there's passion to bring that back. Um, definitely during COVID, I would say that the COP model really flourished. I mean, we used to be in this place where the communities of practice would gather once a year at the conference. They would do the odd thing kind of in between and definitely would, would do some projects or knowledge generation, knowledge sharing, but just the invention of Zoom and, you know, the ability for folks to connect and, and support one another during um, that sort of two and a half year, three year period really, I think, helped a lot of the COPs flourish in that time. And so I think that there's an opportunity. We were in the process of doing a five year review when when COVID hit and we, we put that on pause. I do think there's an opportunity for us to revisit and, and, and assess where we've come maybe as we, we start to approach the 10 year mark. 
Um, and particular, if we think about, you know, the ways in which we support those communities and what resources they need to be successful. Those are some of the reflections that I've had. Janet, what about you? Um, wins, challenges? I think for me, I mean, it's interesting because, because um, as I stepped off the board, um, I really became one of the many members of the organization. And so my view now of the communities of practice is really as a consumer, like a member of the organization. Um, and what I see is a lot more content coming across my desk, right? So there's a lot more conversations. There's a lot more content. There's a, a lot more um, uh, sort of thought-provoking dialogue on and opportunities for professional development. So I feel like, I know there's a lot of work that goes into that, but I, I feel like I, I see less about the or the management of the organization and more about the work of student affairs in this new model. And I certainly felt it at the conference, right? There was so many different sessions you could go to and there was so much um, intersection and overlap between the topics. That's great. I can tell you just even from um, purely from being a member perspective, um, this new model allowed for a small group of us at the conference just last week who are in these strategic initiatives, project manager type roles that seem to be popping up, um, have an informal conversation. We're not ready to be a COP, by the way, but um, you know, we exchanged email addresses and we're going to just have a conversation about how we can support each other and what we can learn from each other. And what I could see is the potential down the road for that nimbleness to turn into a COP that would still allow for um, maybe a little bit more infrastructure support and all that kind of stuff, maybe as this becomes a bit more of a common role in our student affairs divisions. But um, yeah, like that, it was, I think if we'd been thinking in the old divisional model, I don't know whether that kind of idea would have come to us quite as quickly. Maybe, maybe, but um, I think that there's some, there's some, something about the COP model that can allow us to dream in that kind of way. Maybe, I don't know. So, you know, we've, we're coming up to this point, we've talked about some of the benefits, we've talked about some of the challenges. What do you think, um, and Jen, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but what do you think some things that we should be paying attention to with the COP model? What are some things that maybe like we need to give a little TLC to them or, you know, give them the nudge into the next 10 years? What would you, what would you recommend? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the conversations, and you were there, Rachel, that we had last week at the board of directors meeting is is around member engagement, right? And I think that um, one of the the challenges coming out of the pandemic has been a bit of a decline in in engagement in terms of folks stepping forward to um, take on leadership roles within the organization. And, you know, I don't think that that's unusual given the, the amount of, you know, burnout and, and turnover there's been um, in all of your institutions in the last three years. Um, but it's something I think we need to pay attention to in terms of, you know, what are we asking volunteers to do? Um, what is it that folks get out of their experience of being a community of practice leader or a board member or a committee member? What does that mean to the organization? Um, because, you know, we've 
built our strength as for the last 50 years, really through grassroots member engagement, every project, like, yes, we do have a small staff now, but every project, every conversation, every initiative from that fabulous conference we had last week was really driven a lot by, by volunteers. And, you know, is that changing? Is that something that we need to pay attention to? That's definitely something that's been on my mind. Um, in terms of what we ask of volunteers, but also how we support them. Um, and, you know, the conversation around compensation comes up. And I do believe that compensation comes in uh, forms other than just monetary. But I do think it's something that we're cognizant of as we're asking folks to present or share knowledge or be involved in different ways. Um, it's something that I think needs to be at the forefront of our conversations to the future. Janet? Any thoughts on that? I think the other the other piece um, is um, sort of continuing to strike that balance so that um, we we continue to meet sort of the ambitions of the communities of practice. So not getting to a place where we recreate that kind of divisional administrative structure within the COPs, but still have enough leadership and enough support within those communities of practice that they can function. And I don't know necessarily where that sweet spot is, but I think that over time, the, the danger can be that you sort of return to your roots, right? Like if you're not really careful about maintaining the culture of an organization, you can slip back into old practices. And hopefully, you know, we're 10 years in, and I also, David, cannot believe it has been 10 years. Um, but um, I, do, I do think that we need to pay careful attention to that. Um, while still kind of maintaining the strength of the structure. Yeah, definitely. What about you, David? I think the only other thing I would add is we had talked about when we had created the communities of practice about making sure that they are able to be nimble. And, you know, I think there, you know, we want to make sure that we're not, uh, as an organization, trying to hold on to COPs that really aren't reflective of what the members need. And so I think Jennifer did talk a little bit about a review already. And so I think that is a piece of this, right? Um, bring bring in new ones that maybe reflect more of the current need. And, and we can sunset some of the older ones because, you know, if we're holding on to them just to hold on to them, uh, I think that does replicate the divisional nature of, of caucus pre-COPs. And so just trying to spend that time to think about what do we really need for COPs? What do the members, uh, where are they going to want to get engaged in the most meaningful way? Great. Well, and just to, just to quickly build on what David said, um, and also your comment, Rachel, I think, it, you know, this also builds on Janet's point is that we don't want the communities of practice to replicate that siloed approach, right? And so um, we've had folks over the years, for example, someone contacted us and they wanted to create a community of practice on international student mental health. It was kind of like, well, we have an internationalization COP and a campus mental health COP. Is this a community of practice or is this a conversation within the organization and how can we support that as well? And so you were, you're mentioning folks working in the strategic projects arena. Is that a community of practice? Are there other ways in which we can support these kinds of conversations 
that are flexible and responsive, but don't necessarily need to be a community practice per se. And so I think that that's also really interesting for us within the organization to say, you know, let's let's support these. What what could this be? Maybe this is a once a quarter meetup, and you know, the, the senior student affairs officers are also interested in in having a network of some kind. Does it have to fall within the community of practice structure or is there something else? So I think I, I really like the idea of being open-minded in terms of how do we meet those member needs and is that a workshop or is that a community of practice or is it something in between? And let's let's be flexible and as responsive as we can be. So that excites me. We could have an international students mental health summit hosted by caucus and the two COPs, <laughs> right? Yeah. Again, well, and and we do we do try to have you know to ensure that those cross conversations are happening. And one thing we haven't talked about is we do have what's called the assembly of caucus communities because as we were going through this change, one of the pieces that was really important to people who were involved with the divisions was how do we still have a voice on the board, right? It was like they were losing that sense of place in terms of the decision-making body of the organization. And so we had created this assembly of caucus communities was really a place for the community of practice co-chairs to come together and in theory, raise questions to come back to the board um, if that was necessary. And um, the we do try to encourage at that assembly, which meets four times a year, cross collaborations between the various communities. So when the EDI community of practice is having a conversation about something, where can they collaborate with other communities to move that forward? So it doesn't feel like this is exclusive to that one community, but it's open to everybody within caucus. Um, I think that that's really important. And that also folks who don't necessarily see themselves as part of the organization right now, that we're continually thinking about ways in which we can reflect all student affairs professionals within caucus. And maybe it isn't a COP, maybe it's something else, but yeah, that's definitely something I've been thinking about as well. And I think, I mean, maybe Jennifer, just to build on that, but I, I do think that that is coming back to the, the model. One of the strengths of the community of practice is it invites people into a community just because they're interested in the topic and they want to learn, right? You don't have to be an expert. Whereas in the divisional model, I think there was a sense that you could only belong to that division if that was your exclusive work and you had something to contribute in terms of leadership and expertise. And so it, it's a it's a much more um, fluid and open model in theory. And I and I do know even from the folks from UBC that are part of caucus that the communities of practice model has allowed them to dip their toes in professional development that they might not otherwise have an opportunity to. Um, and I don't think that would have been possible in the in the divisional model in the same way. Yeah, I totally agree. And actually, you've just started to touch on my last question to wrap this up, which is what are the benefits of joining a COP? And I'm not just talking about like, you know, becoming a leader in a COP, chairing it, um, but just joining and, 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 and dipping your toes in and or getting really involved. What would you say, um, what would you want to let people know who are listening? You know, here are the benefits of joining. We want you to get involved. We want you to actually get benefit out of these, these communities of practice. David, you want to start us off there? Sure. So I, I, I think 
Janet talked about a, a very important benefit of the COPs, but I also maybe will build on that a little bit and, and talk about the people in their roles at their home institutions where they often don't actually get that opportunity for that inter intersection and cross-pollination of, of ideas from different areas. And so really, I think joining a COP, even if you are um, a participant through observation or or active in, actively involved either way you you are able to develop more um, more skills and competencies in the areas that you want to develop so that you are in a better position to support students at your home institutions um, and and just I mean I think that's a real benefit to the COPs that I would leave you with Jen. Well, yeah, echoing what David said, I would also just mention, you know, in terms of what does joining mean? And and one of the things I'm really proud that the board um, made the decision during COVID to really keep things as open and accessible as possible. And so if you are out there in the, the student affairs verse and you see something happening that one of our communities of practice is putting on, we really, for the most part, have kept everything open to anyone. So you don't have to be a member of caucus. Of course, we want you to be a member of caucus, and you will you will definitely hear about things that COPs are doing more regularly if you are a member. But we do try to promote things on social media, make things as open as possible on our website, so that if there is a conversation you're interested in joining, that you can do that regardless of membership status. So I think that that's an important piece, too, that... Um, that, that we've really kept to particularly during COVID when we know people's resources were more constrained. Um, and again, like David said, like I think if you're if you're working in um, financial aid and you're really interested in moving into accessibility services or something, for example, that it is a really um, open and um, safe way for you to participate in conversations with your colleagues and learn a little bit about different functional areas and different conversations across um, and build your post-secondary acumen, which is one of our uh, competencies at caucus, so. Great. Anything you'd like to add, Janet? I might, I might just go back to, um, to, to some of the, the conversations and decisions that we made at the time. And, and I think one of the things that we really tried to focus on as we were thinking about um, the shift was also to pay really close attention to language, right? The language that was described in sort of in the whole um, nomenclature of a division versus community. Um, and this this kind of um, careful attention to sense of belonging for professionals who do this work. Um, and I think in the old structure, um, I often found that there was kind of a sometimes a perception of kind of exclusivity that, you know, you're in or you were out. Um, whereas if you look up, and I, and I remember doing this as president, if you, if you look up community in a thesaurus or a dictionary, you find words like kinship and unity and identity and cooperation and convergence. And, and I think, I think we do, we can provide that through the communities. It's a reason to join because it is a, a community where you can find sense of belonging, where you can find that kinship, and you can find that support if you're an individual who maybe is the sole person who does this work on your institution or your campus. That's great. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us for the Caucus 50 podcast to talk about, I guess, sort of a new communities of practice model, but almost not new anymore. Um, maybe maybe uh, it's entering its teenage years, um, but it's so great to have people who are very, very involved and did a lot of hard work in creating this new model, um, the process of consultation and listening and iterating and getting us to the point where we did did take on this new model as an organization in our 50 years as an organization. So thank you to David Newman and to Janet Mee and to Jennifer Hamilton. Um, great to have you here for this conversation. Thank you. Project is an initiative of the Canadian Association of College and University Student Services in recognition of our organization's 50 years of engaging student affairs professionals in Canada. The series of podcasts is recorded and produced by Sean Fast, Adam Hewen, Nicholas Fast, Rachel Barreca, Stephanie Muletaller, Noah Arney, Sally Chen, Estefania Toledo, Paula Jean Broderick, Jennifer Brown, Margaret DeLeon, and Becca Gray. Intro and outro music is courtesy of Alexi Stryapchi. This podcast is recorded, produced, and published on the traditional territories of hundreds of Indigenous nations from across the northern half of Turtle Island, also known by its settler colonial name, Canada. We are grateful for the opportunity to live, work, and learn on this land. Miigwech.